0: Well, we're in Ecclesiastes, we've got a longer passage today, uh, and it's actually written in a very interesting form of parallelism called chiasm, Uh, chiasm because it's this, uh, it's the structure that Solomon is is writing in, Uh, the structure resembles the letter chi, the Greek letter, and and the letter chi in Greek actually looks like the English letter of X, but Xism doesn't make as much sense. Anyway, I've outlined it in the bulletin. You can see it there. And if you, if you kind of notice there, you can see it's the left side of the X is the kind of the shape that it makes. And the only reason I point this out to you is, is so that you can see that the high point of Solomon's argument that he's making today is, is there in verse five or chapter 5, verse 20. And we're going to look through this section by section, which means that we're going to be uh, first reading in chapter 5, verses 8 to 12. And then we're going to skip, or what seems like skipping a, a section of the text, and read chapter 6, verses 7 and 9, and then unpack all that together as one point. If that sounds confusing, just follow the outline in your your bulletin. The A's go together, the B's go together, and since C's all by itself, it it goes together with itself. Anyway, keep an eye on the bulletin if you get confused. Let's let's read beginning Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 through 12 to start. If you see in a providence the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. Do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for in a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them And what advantage has the owner but to see with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And then skipping over to chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider the love of money today, uh, it might be easy for us to observe. The hearts of those around us, those financially above us. Keep us from judgment so that we might instead rightly observe our own hearts, our own tendencies to love money and possessions more than we might you. Give us a true understanding of how we might enjoy the gifts that you give without bowing down to them in worship. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, I've I've been surprised, really, by how similar Israel in this time is to the United States in our time, which I think is really just a result of, of people in all eras being more similar to each other than we might ever dream. Uh, but I've always been surprised, really surprised, by, by how, despite all these medical advancements and all these technological advancements, and uh, you know, people are really searching still to this day for satisfaction in the same area. The most common desire for our fulfillment has been us believing that if I could just get rich, then I would be satisfied. I mean, think about the stories of of people seeking riches, betting and and winning on that 200 to one horse, winning the lottery, Uh, you know, the gold rush in California, just going out there in the hopes that they might strike it rich. In the late 90s, we we saw the dot-com rush and the dot-com bust. Uh, we, we buy stock in companies in the hope that maybe they'll go up insanely amounts and, and it skyrocket until we find ourselves wealthy. I, I can't tell you how many times in my life I've even had a friend explain to me some multi-level marketing plan that was guaranteed to get us all rich. For many, the dream of professional sports also is that I'm going to get a giant paycheck. Even in the church, we've seen health and wealth preachers, you know, With the statement send me your money and god will reward you uh, reward your faith in doing so by prospering you financially in that situation the man asking for money and the one sending in the money are both seeking satisfaction in the same source wealth and since we're all very capable of, of believing that wealth can bring us satisfaction we need to to hear this we need to hear this text and believe this text that's Solomon's writing, and ultimately God in this first point in the passage, he reminds us that having wealth will not satisfy our hearts. It won't even satisfy our, our desire for wealth. Now, to be fair, he gets to that point in a very strange way. If you look at verse eight, he says, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. See, typically when speaking about the dangers of wealth, you don't lead by talking about the poor and oppressed. So why does he? He does so because often the poverty of some is tied to the wealth of others. See, there's this system that he wants us to see. Uh, Halfway through verse 8, he writes, the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. And, And the point here is not... Levels of, of bosses over each other forming some idea of accountability in fact It's quite the opposite uh, the point is that these wealthy men are looking out for each other in order to help each other become More wealthy it's a sort of super wealthy club And so in the end the poor have very little opportunity for justice What we see here is that these super wealthy are only concerned with their own Treasury growing rich and, and richer And to be honest, as you're hearing this, you might be hearing what I hear when I first read this. It sounds like this is going to be a social justice passage where the next thing he's going to do is tell us this is what we do to to set things right, to stop the injustice in the world. That's not what he does. Instead, he writes, when you see this greed, this greed that, that violates justice and oppresses the poor, don't be amazed. See, even in Israel... At this time, they live as though they have forgotten uh, the law of Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's like when we hear that in China they're, they're paying people tiny wages to, to work in horrible factories so that these owners might get rich. That shouldn't shock us. And it shouldn't shock us because people born with sinful natures are going to be greedy. Verse 9 also seems a little strange at first. It reads, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. It has in mind a nation where the wealthy have bought up all the land as an investment. And they don't use the land. They don't farm the land. They don't allow anyone else to farm the land. Which, which means that the poor cannot even glean what is left over in this field. Uh, if you think, you remember back to Ruth. She was in Boaz's field. And the people went and harvested, and she came behind and was able to find enough food to live on. Uh, If no one farms it, you don't even have that opportunity. And and Solomon's point here is that it would be better for the nation if the king controlled the land so that at least the poor would be able to have some access to what was left over. And, And all this really is just this strange introduction to verse 10, which reads, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Twice he refers to the one who loves want money, the one who loves wealth. See they love money so much they don't care what it costs them or what it costs anybody else for them to obtain this. In college I was a a philosophy major and I can remember every year there's this huge class in our department called engineering ethics. I never had to take the class but I can remember asking one of my professors one time what is that why do all the engineers take this class and he said basically it was about not making a bridge that you knew was not strong enough to be safe for people to cross I was surprised by that I said with a little sarcasm and people need to be taught that and he responded there will be pressure on them to make a bridge for as little money as possible so that someone else can make as much money as possible and they have got to be convinced that part of their calling as engineers is to engineer bridges which are safe for people. That doing what is right and what is safe is more important than the money that they seek to earn. That made a little more sense. See, people will make compromises for money because they believe with much wealth there is much satisfaction. Now, we've got to be careful. Whenever we speak of money, we, we, that we... View it in the way that scripture actually presents it because it's easy to get it one way or the other way. And so, look at verse 10 again. What's the major issue that Solomon sees with money? It really isn't people having money, it's people loving money. Paul Tripp says it well when he says, Money is not evil, but it makes a very, very bad God. What we take. Uh, when we take what is a gift and a, a tool and we bow down to it in worship, we've asked money to do what it cannot do. We've asked money to give the satisfaction in life and it cannot accomplish that for us. And that's the first of these three, three points in this passage. He uses that now familiar term vanity. We've seen it over and over and over again. Uh, this idea that to love and, and to pursue satisfaction and money is like a mist. You can reach out with your hand to grab it, but you're going to find nothing you're going to find frustration, dissatisfaction. See, we, we see this same idea throughout Scripture. In Hebrews 13.5, we read that uh, we fight the, the love of money or the desire for the love of money by trusting that God will provide for us. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in 1 Timothy 6.10, we're told how following the love of money can lead us away from the faith. It says, it reads, For the love of money is a a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, it'd be easy for us to pride ourselves here, I think. Uh, For us to think, I don't love money more than God. So ask yourself, if not money, what other things... Could you easily find yourself loving more than you should? Because really, the, the bigger issue, even in this text, is that God desires to be our highest priority in all of life, to be what our hearts love most. And, and money is just really one of the more tempting things in the world for us to love more than God. If you love collecting rocks more than God, that's a real problem. Uh, but money, money here is the object uh, that our hearts desire to bow down to that our text deals with so uh, let me remind you again though that there is no shame in earning money if someone will pay you two hundred thousand dollars to engineer a bridge uh, a safe bridge by all means let them pay you the two hundred thousand dollars there is also no shame in having money um, yet it can be a danger to our hearts and that's what we need to be cautious about first timothy six seventeen and 19 just a little further on than what we read a moment ago Uh, Paul's writing to a young pastor, a pastor named Timothy, and and he gives Timothy this task. He says, when when God brings wealthy people into faith, here's what they need to know. Here's what you need to tell them. And he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. You don't know what haughty is, probably. Um, It's this arrogant superiority. Some of you probably know that. I didn't know that, so I looked it up. We have a new life, a new life with new values and new priorities. Uh, in our sinful nature, we, we live in a kingdom that is ruled by wealth and ruled by possessions and by power. But uh, in the kingdom of heaven, we now are able to see these things with their pro- within their proper perspective. A- and thus, what were God's to us become tools for us to participate in the larger plan of God in the world. In verses 11 and 12 Solomon gives a few other reasons why money will not satisfy us. First, in verse 11, he says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? See, the more money and possessions people have, the more people they need to manage and to care for those things. If your house gets too big, you'll need maids, maybe many maids If your yard gets too large, there'll be no time for you to care for the yard, you'll need to hire someone to do that. You'll need nannies for your children, you'll need someone to take care of your cars and your horses, and an investor to manage your money, you'll need a, uh, maybe a bodyguard or some sort of security. A tax guy is going to need to get paid to handle this. Even charities will be knocking on your door looking for funds. Now make sure you heard me right here. None of those things is sinful. That's not what the text says. His point is just that at some point we find ourselves with everything we could dream of having. And instead of enjoying those things, we only add to our own burdens. We now need to work more, to have more money, to pay more people, to care for our stuff. And and that's why he says the owner just sees them with his eyes. He has no time to enjoy them. He just sees them. He sees all that he has, and he gets to see other people enjoying them. And then in verse 12, he writes, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. See, with many riches come worries. Having money in stock means that we need to watch it. When the market dips, that adds stress. You go to bed at night wondering, is that going to come back up in the next few days? The poor... Laborer, on the other hand, might have a rough life. There are some stresses on what he cannot uh, pay for. Uh, but whether he goes to bed hungry or full, he's still not worrying about business. Uh, work doesn't come home with him. He also won't be worrying about his investments, about the chance of losing his wealth. And really, there are endless stories of, of people losing their wealth. And, and when their stock market crashes and, and the response is often something as tragic as ending their own life. Because you see, the love of money is a powerful vice. this is where we're going to jump. We're going to jump over to Ecclesiastes 6-7, which reads, All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. At the most basic level, we work so that we can eat, so that we can survive. Yet, even our eating is never really satisfied. I mean, think about it. Most of you ate lunch today, right? It doesn't matter how much you stuffed your face today, you're going to be hungry tonight. It's going to happen. See, our desire for food never actually ends. It comes back again and again. Uh, Solomon's also talking about our our desire for wealth in a similar way. We always find ourselves needing just a little bit more to be where we really want to be financially. And and that's the point of verses 8 and 9 in chapter 6 as well. He says, uh, the contented poor man actually has has some advantage here. Uh, Verse 9 says... Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Uh, This means it's better for the poor who enjoy what they have than for those who are constantly wandering around looking for more to fulfill their appetite because that's going to be an endless wandering. And that brings us to Solomon's second point, namely that it's evil for people not to enjoy our lives. I want you to follow along chapter 5, 13 through 17 as I read it. It says, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness and anger. Where we read in verse 13 there of chapter 5, there is a grievous evil. This is literally, there is this sickening evil. He's talking about people who are hoarding their riches. And this is because hoarding is this this sign of, of selfish love for money. Uh, in verses 13 and 14 he, he paints this picture of someone losing all of his wealth. Someone who spends their whole life amassing this wealth only to lose it in a bad investment. Uh, being from Houston I immediately thought of, uh, of people who invested so much into the company Enron. Uh, it didn't go well. There were some guys that had cooked the books and um, when all that came to light we saw so many people just lose everything they had. Uh, almost everything they had. Uh, All that investing just resulted in nothing, nothing to retire on, nothing to leave to their family, Uh, great fear and worry in their life. And and in verse 15, it speaks of the other way that we can lose our wealth. It speaks of death. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, surely you've heard of him in history, uh, one of the richest people to ever live, was once asked, how much money is enough? Uh, He famously answered, just a bit more which speaks to this ceaseless appetite for more. Uh, but really, it's the exchange that happened after his death. That death uh, That's the one that really gives perspective to, to what happens to the wealth that we amass in our life. After Rockefeller's death, someone asked his accountant, how much did he leave? And the accountant kind of snidely responded, all of it. So you can't take it with you. It's like our experience at Legoland in Kansas City, this will actually make sense to you, I think, they have this huge pit of Lego pieces there. It's amazing. And, and Beckham and I, when we were there, we dug through this pit and we collected all the stuff we needed to build up things. And, and we saw others who had pieces we want and we went golem on them and we really wanted their pieces. Um, and, and we'd wait along and, you know, when they would leave, we would, we would take their pieces. Uh, and really, it, it felt like these pieces belonged to us. We, we had found them, we had earned them, they were ours, and we could hold on to them. And yet, at the end of the day, when we left Legoland because they close and eventually kick you out, um, we could not take those pieces with us because they weren't really ours to begin with. They were only ours to enjoy while we were there, while we were still in there. You see, it was better to enjoy the pieces we had than to spend the day just collecting pieces from everyone else in there. Expect you can see how this mirrors our relationship with wealth. Uh, it's like Psalm 49.17 says, For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. The image in verse 17 of eating in darkness is a picture of what happens after wealth is lost. Meals, which were a social event, are now lonely because uh, as so many friends were made with the money, uh, they are now lost with the loss of money. Entourages, entourages leave when, when the well runs dry. That's just the way that typically works. Uh, the other half of this section in verse, uh, chapter 6, uh, I'm going to read, follow along as I read it, beginning in <coughs> six, <chapter> one, <coughs> 6 verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. Notice it says in in verse 2 that God gives wealth, that God gives possessions, that God gives honor, And, and yet God does not give the ability to enjoy those gifts. How does God prevent this man from enjoying those gifts? It doesn't say. We don't know. It's a mystery which God has chosen not to reveal to us. But what we do see is that it is God who gives the gift, and it is God who gives the ability to enjoy the gift. So if you can enjoy the gifts of God, you have God to thank for that. In this portion of our text, the man's life is is miserable because he does not enjoy the the good things of life. The scenario is given. It's really the Israelite version of the American dream. It's the Israel dream. Uh, Many children and a long life. uh, That's the the Israel dream. And yet he says in verse 3, if someone were to have both those things and not be satisfied, satisfied with life's good things, then a stillborn child is better off. That is a shocking statement, and it's shocking on on purpose. His point is that if if you're not enjoying the gifts of God, then your life is worse than than it never existed. And this shocking image is intended to get us to realize that we must start living different. We must make time to enjoy our lives, including the good gifts which God has given us, yes, that God has given us. Do you think of your yard and your home and your TV and your food as gifts from God? You should. And do you enjoy them and give thanks to God for them? You should. And that's the last point here. That's where Solomon has been leading us in this passage. And I want you to read along as I read, or follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 5, 18-20. with joy in his heart. To put simply his point is, his point and really what I want to persuade you to today is to enjoy the daily gifts of God. How do we do that? How do we enjoy the blessings of God in our lives? That's an important question and the first thing we must know is that what our text says there, it says good and and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. How many of you have that on your task list this week, your to do list, that you're going to get up and you're going to enjoy eating and drinking and and just find enjoyment in life? See, it's not an imitation to hedonism. I think we sometimes read that and think that. Uh, It's not an imitation for gluttony or drunkenness. It's an imitation to enjoy God's good gifts and, and that means to enjoy them in the way that God has designed them, which includes moderation. But it is a call for us to find enjoyment in the ordinary things of life. Let me give you an example. Uh, this week, as I was studying this passage, um, and, and really how we should enjoy these, these good gifts of God, at one point I found myself standing in the kitchen and looking out the back window, and I saw our hammock. It's this purple hammock, and it looks really comfortable. I remembered back to when I first saw that hammock hanging in a store, when I was on a mission trip in Guatemala, and, and when I bought it, I imagined one day laying on that hammock and, and just relaxing. That's what drove me to buy that. And, and then it hit me, even this week, as, as I had made myself so busy that I didn't have time to lay in that hammock and enjoy it, and at that moment, I just stopped what I was doing. I went out there, I grabbed a book, and I, and I laid in the hammock, and it was so relaxing for a moment because then I felt guilty. I, I felt shame that I was stopping to rest in this hammock. See, for some reason, I could not even let myself enjoy that. When I bought the hammock, that's not the way I imagined it at all. Why do we feel such shame for enjoying the gifts of God? we've got to stop doing that and a passage like this uh, like we have today really frees us to enjoy the gifts of God so you're going to spend this life in pursuit of more wealth or or wake up each day with this goal of enjoying this day which is a gift of God to in moderation, to enjoy food and drink and to enjoy whatever it is you get to do for work this week coming up is, is spring break. What a great time to have a text like this. What are you going to do? See, so we don't need to be rich to find something to enjoy each and every day, but, but also in verse 19, Solomon, and ultimately God, has something to say to those who are rich. He's, you know, and, and really, I think that includes all of us by basic idea that we where we live in the area we live in. Uh, he says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions that's us, and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, for this is the gift of God. He acknowledges that it is God who has given this wealth, uh, God who has given these possessions, that, and even God who has given the power to enjoy them. These are things he's acknowledging. And, and rather than seeking even more and more and more, he says, accept this lot and rejoice in your work and rejoice in your life. Why? Why? Because it's a gift of God. I don't think this could be any more clear for us. There's two ways we live our lives. Either we pursue wealth that never satisfies and leads to a disastrous life, or two, that we enjoy the gifts of God, and that includes the work to do, friends, family, sunshine, money to travel, money to purchase a grill for your backyard, hammocks. Uh, even the joy of en- enjoying that money, to bring others joy, and, and, or maybe to loosen the pains of others or lessen the pains of others. You know, like we saw in First Timothy, that with our money we be generous and ready to share. You know, Jesus makes a similar statement to this in Matthew 6, verse 24, when he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So the last verse we'll look at today is chapter 5, verse 20. Solomon writes here, For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The idea there is that man or woman who is enjoying the gifts of God does not sit and focus on everything they can complain about or what they don't have. Uh, When that's the case, life tends to go fast. I know that's not always what we want, but think of it more this way. When you are with people that you enjoy, four hours can go by and seem like nothing. When you find yourself in a situation that you'd rather not be in, that clock goes slower than you can possibly imagine. That God keeps us occupied with good and righteous enjoyments, bringing joy to our hearts is a gift. Brothers, sisters, we need to embrace that. I mean, we're going to... Take the Lord's Supper in a moment, and one of the things that that Jesus has freed us to do is to enjoy the good gifts of God. Let's, Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, we have seen that it is you who gives gifts, you who provide for us wealth and possessions, and that it is also you who enables us to enjoy the gifts you give. We ask that we would not worship your gifts, nor that we would feel shame because we have received from your hand. Instead, God, help us to have a right perspective that we would enjoy this life and the gifts you have given us.